You are listening to the Conversations for Change podcast with Dolphin Casper. Hello, my friends. Uh, I'm excited to welcome you to another episode of Conversations for Change. I am really excited to have a friend and colleague on the show today, Tony Estevez. He's uh, recently published a book and is now it's fully out and launched and on Amazon and other wonderful places. Uh, he is a uh, juggler and circus performer. He uh, works in con- consulting and leadership and uh, also now a- an accomplished author and uh, just a lovely human being. And the, the topic of his book and, and the spirit of his work have always been something that I've, I've resonated with. You know, you meet people and the, the quality of how they live and what they're up to has you leaning in. And Tony is one of these kinds of people and uh, so just excited to have him on the show and uh, looking forward to hearing a little bit more about him, about the process of writing the book, uh, what it means and what it could mean for you to meet new people in a new way um, and all of the benefits that can come from that. So, Tony, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, uh, thanks very much, Dolphin, for, for having me. It's, a, it's a, always a pleasure to have a conversation with you. Yeah, sweet. So, I mean, first, uh, uh, maybe we can start with the book uh, in terms of it being just the most fresh and alive in you. I know you, you uh, I think it's this week that there's an event uh, for the book and uh, th- newly it's on Amazon. And so that's all fresh and new. And, and maybe we can kind of work our way back from that, sort of the how, how the book came to be. But first, um, tell me a little bit about the book, um, what it was like to write it. And then, uh, you know, I'll, I'll pick some, some places to go in that conversation. You mean you mean this book here? That book right there, that one. My name on it. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. So uh, so this is talk to more people. That change your life by meeting people, and and thank you, of course, for asking about it. I, I'm really really pleased to be putting that th- this work out into the world today. Um, I'm I'm really pleased to be putting this work out into the world this week, because um, yeah, of course, writing a book is. Is, is quite a project, and that project has now come to a conclusion, and I, 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 I'm now at the exciting stage that any author would hope to achieve, I think, is to see, well, how does this, this work make an impact on people? So it's, it's an exciting moment. Yeah, cool. And with talking to more people, uh, how does that come through in the book? And I know that there was a, 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 a kind of project that you were working on that was involved you meeting new people every day for a year. So <clears throat> maybe tell us a little bit about the the meat of the book. Like what's the thrust of it? What, what, what can people expect in engaging that material? And then I'd love to hear about the preamble, like that the whole project of meeting a new person every day for a year that is super interesting to me. And, and I know it's rich for you as well. Certainly. The, uh, the, the book is, uh, it's part storybook, part tool book, um, you know, part mindfulness book. So it's uh, meant to be a really useful resource for people who perhaps are a little bit more introverted, that that pe- people who want to learn how to connect with others, but perhaps don't have a lot of practice with it or, or a lot of experience with it. So in the book, there's a six-step process that teaches people exactly how to do that. And starting from very simple steps of not even actually busting into a conversation or, or going up to a person, but just noticing your mindsets and noticing your, your, your listening and noticing things like being present and, and putting the smartphone away so that you can observe your surroundings and become more aware of what's going on around you. 
And there is, as I mentioned, a really big mindfulness piece in the book as well. A, a colleague and, and mindfulness expert named uh, Tracy Delfs, who I met along the project, she, uh, she contributed a full mindfulness section in the, in the appendix of the book. So it's also, a, it's also an introduction to you know, being present as well, which can be hugely, hugely helpful when it comes to connecting with new people. As, as far as the, <clears throat> the Talk to More People projects, well, that's largely what the, the premise of the book is based upon, is, is expressing through stories the phenomenal benefits that are within reach of each of us who dare to reach out and have a conversation with a stranger. And so that project involved me intentionally meeting one new person a day for a, a full year. And as a result of doing that, my life was positively and profoundly transformed. And, you know, before that project, before going on that kind of expedition, um, that that's a unique thing to choose to do. You know, not everyone says, I'm going to meet a new person every day for a year. And, um, and I think a lot of people wouldn't even know why they might do that or why that might benefit them. So maybe tell me a little bit about what was going on for you before you chose to embark on that. And, and I'd love to hear more about like some of the, the more poignant realizations or, or kind of light bulb moments you had along the way. So around that time, I was going through one of these patches that people watching this video could probably relate to in that uh, life was not so great for me. I was going through a, a tough time. I was uh, dealing with some depression and anxiety and had been, uh, had been on medication for it, which I sternly resisted for years, but it became evident that that was a support that I needed. And so I, I came up with the idea to intentionally meet. It first started as an, a, an idea to intentionally meet one new person every day for a month because around that time of my life, I had been doing a bunch of 30-day challenges and noticed some pretty excellent results from setting my mind to doing something every day for 30 days. And when the project began, it just instantly was this wonderful adventure through people. And my, my business coach at the time advised me, she said, Tony, if you want to make a big impact with this, don't do it every day for a month, but do it every day for a year. And in that state of not feeling my, my true best self, uh, having been dealing with these challenges, but then being presented with that challenge, that, that healthy challenge, I, uh, I, I, I dove in and it, and, and it all helped me get through that depression and over that anxiety. And from the research I've done, it's, it's, it's actually, it totally is about the the journey, not the destination. So it's that the fact that I had the pursuit of a meaningful goal for those days of that project is what helped uplift me and and help me become more of myself again. So those are those are a couple of reasons I'd recommend other people consider meeting new people. But you don't need to go as extreme as I did to get started. Right. And and in the extreme though, I think we we get to see more starkly the kinds of results that we might experience through making conscious change. Like the, the whole idea of spending 30 days doing something that's outside of your comfort zone, that's outside of your usual routine. Um, in, in a certain way, it almost doesn't matter what it is. Just the fact that you're choosing to do that and you're, you're choosing to stretch outside of what's comfortable has all sorts of benefit 
and, and allows you to see life in a new way. And, and then if you populate that challenge or that, uh, you know, movement outside of your comfort zone with something that, that actually practically supports health and well-being, and, and uh, on your side, I think you, you, can, you can say strongly and, and confidently that meeting new people in the way that you've chosen to do is that. It's like, it's not just, you know, uh, doing something arbitrary that's different. It's doing something that's different, that stretches you out of your comfort zone. And the inherent nourishment and benefit of that particular activity um, has a wide sweeping impact. So like, that's what I'd like to hear a little bit about in terms of, so you had a, a meaningful goal that you were pursuing and that helped you, probably brought you out of a kind of slump and, a, and that kind of depressive affect and way of being in life. But there was likely also really impactful moments that that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't about meeting new people. So, you know, are there any particular uh, meetings or interactions that stand out during that year that you think um, could help people understand like the, the, what the project was really about? There are, there are several. And first I'd like to, first I'd like to touch on one key point that people consider if they're considering trying this adventure of intentionally meeting people is the positive effect it can have on others. So it, it, of course, I'm so grateful for how it transformed my life and the impact this, this, there's this ripple effect of positivity that can, can be created through a chance encounter between two people, whether that is just an exchange in line at the grocery store or the coffee shop or uh, a serendipitous half hour conversation you have with someone who you, who you meet on the street. Because when people exchange ideas or information through a conversation, the person who, who's receiving the new information has a new opportunity to do something with that. And that can lead to really, really positive change. And, and I got to see a number of examples of that throughout the project. So for example, uh, I met a, a fellow on, um, it was uh, two, it was Boxing Day 2016, a gentleman named Ryan Flood, who was interested in getting back into live music. And, and at that time, I had been involved in a number of house concerts that were happening. Uh, a guy named Chance Devlin here in Calgary had been, had been hosting house concerts on Sunday nights. And so I, of course, invited him. I said, why don't you come out to this, this thing? And he said yes. And he showed up with a, with a tongue drum that he had built. And he started collaborating with the other musicians. And so he, he ended up connecting with a gentleman named True, who's another friend of mine I met on day 142. And they recorded together. They made all kinds of music together. They, they became good friends, got involved in a music festival together. And so there was this, I, I, was, I was just the, the conduit between two people. And then they took it and created their own adventures together. And they're, they're still friends to this day. And so there are a number of, a number of encounters like that where it really wasn't even about me. I was just, I know somebody who likes music. I'm going to introduce you to the music people. <laughs> and, and that was really, really wonderful to witness and to continue to celebrate to this day. And I love that in, in, in the context of the choices we make each day, I think mostly we've forgotten the magic that can happen when we just listen we show up, we engage, and we listen, and we go, oh, like there's there's points that in a certain way want to connect. 
points of life, points of people, points of reality that they, they're, they're meant to dance together and we can be the, the kind of instrument that brings those pieces together so they can dance. And, and then we don't have to do it all. It's not about like adding a bunch of new work to our lives. It's about just being a little bit more engaged, listening a little bit more deeply. And then when you see that there's an opportunity for something beautiful to happen, you just just give it like this little, it's just a little nudge. It's all like in a certain way, that's that's all that's needed um, a lot of the time. And, and so that story to me is just such a lovely example of that. Mm, and what you just said there sounds almost like poetry, you know, <laughs> just creating an opportunity for these these things to dance together. And I think that's a really beautiful, a beautiful way to put it. And, and actually that's one, that's one way we can take the pressure off ourselves if meeting new people is something that is, that is scary, is recognize, well, one of the things you're, you're doing really is you're just accessing your own world of knowledge and life experience and allowing yourself to express that at the right time, to engage in a conversation that's already happening or to use as a tool to connect with other people. So I think a lot of people have this fear that they need to have a script or they need to know exactly what to say or exactly what to wear or to be approachable or not weird or awkward with strangers. But what's really, really important is that you be yourself. And and then things can eventually, when you're relaxed, which comes from mindfulness, um, things will come to you that, that just make sense and fit the situation and flow completely naturally. Hmm. So you, you're making it all sound so good and, and, and so easy in a way. And I, I absolutely know that for some people, it doesn't look or feel easy. Um, and I know there's lots of reasons in spite of the fact that as human beings, we are deeply and inherently social creatures. We want to belong. We want to connect. We want to be close. We want to share intimacy and, and, and interaction with each other. And yet uh, it seems in our world, we're, we're growing more and more socially isolated and COVID and the pandemic is obviously a, a particular blip in, in the trajectory of feeling less connected, um, especially in physical ways, like in being in proximity physically and interacting physically. Um, I'm wondering if you could say, and I know you include this in the book, like what are some of the reasons that that we have, whether we're aware of them or not, that, that keep us from these kinds of interactions? And, and then I'd love to talk about what you've discovered that helps us bridge those gaps. Certainly, uh, one of the the common obstacles that that I hear from from people is exactly that: is they they think that they don't have anything to say. They think that there's I have nothing to offer to this conversation, so I'll just keep to myself. And really, I, that's just that's a mindset shift. And one one thing for people who who have that obstacle, one thing that you can do is as you touched on earlier in the conversation, is really just focus on your listening and just focus on being present and start with just observing with your ears the things that you that you can hear, that you can relate to. And that means you don't have to chime into a conversation or go up and join a conversation yet, but by starting with just listening to what's going on around you and in the spaces where you find people today, you will notice things that you could relate to, and maybe even subjects that you're even a bit of an expert in. And in noticing that, because you've got your phone away and in your pocket, and you're looking up and seeing the world, in noticing that, the individual has the opportunity then to think about, oh, well, well, well I would add that you know, if I wasn't afraid to join the conversation. 
And then work, we work away at that, and eventually people gain self-confidence to, to join in. Another thing I've, I've heard, of course, is, is that you, you can't meet people during a pandemic. And, and I would say to that, you absolutely can. I, I, I know of a small handful of people who have gotten into new romantic relationships during pandemic. Admittedly, some people met online. Uh, and also, I know of people who met out while walking their dog out on the street and just happened to get themselves into conversation because they had the intention of, of meeting people, being open to that, and not just being plugged in all the time. So those are a couple that come to mind. I could go on if you like, but I don't want to ramble too much. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's important because a lot of people are going to be listening or watching and and they'll say to themselves, yeah, but, you know, like, okay, great. So Tony did it for a year and he had all these great experiences. We have this amazing ability to make ourselves special in a way that that prevents us from having the life that we really want. You know, like, well, I I have too much anxiety or, or you know, like no one likes me or you kind of touched on the piece around people feeling like they don't have anything to say. What are some of the tools or, or approaches that you would recommend for someone that, um, you know, for them to take those baby steps? She's like, you're not saying people need to be this radically different person, but what are some practical things that someone who might feel like it's too big a deal, like their fear of rejection? I know that's a big piece of, of what might keep us from from these interactions. But like what what would help? Two things, actually. Where do you think our fear of rejection comes from? And then how would you support someone in engaging and transforming it? Hmm. Okay, there's a lot there for me to address, but uh, I'll start with uh, with the fear of rejection. So fear of rejection is something that even I, as an extroverted performer, facilitator guy, experience from time to time. And it's completely normal. It is a, a safety thing, I believe, where we, we don't want to feel rejected because we feel like we're pretty much being put down. If someone doesn't allow us to talk to them, they, if they turn a shoulder, we feel like, yeah, well, we've been rejected, right? We feel, we feel lesser for whatever reason, whatever story we carry in our own mind, we feel lesser if someone decides not to speak with us. Never mind what's going on for the other person. You know, maybe there was a recent death in the family, or maybe they just are not a chatty person. Like there, there could be any number of reasons why someone might reject you when you approach them, and it doesn't matter. The stakes are so low when we are trying to make a new conversation. They're so, they're so low and so high at the same time because they're low in a sense that if you get rejected, it doesn't matter. You can just accept that no as a, as a no that's closer to a yes, just as you would in any sales training. And, 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 and the stakes are also high in that when those connections do happen and, and you don't get rejected, which by the way, is a vast majority of the time, statistically, you're extremely unlikely to get rejected although we think we are, and there's research to back that up. Uh, the, I say the stakes are high because when, when you do have these connections, they can lead to these profound, life-changing experiences. I'm going to have to get you to repeat what you wanted me to address next, Dolphin. Let's go a little bit more into that um, because I think it's, it's worth talking about. Um, we have this idea that the stakes are so high on the negative side of things and we tend to be numb to or not aware of the benefit side of the equation. And what you're saying is that the research says the opposite. 
like how are we getting that so wrong I, like, how are we so off the mark with with our interpretation of that that's a great that is a great question and I, and I think it has a great deal to do with uh, the technology of today that was was uh, flouted as as being you know here to connect us all through through uh, through the media of course we've talked about this at length and, and unfortunately it's it's really atomizing us it's really isolating us and giving us all our own very very personalized experience uh, of the internet based on the things that we uh, read research videos we watch uh, we, we all have a completely unique experience of the internet and of our social media feeds which I believe has also created a great deal uh, excuse me a great deal of the extreme polarization we see in world politics at this interesting moment in history. And so we've been kind of trained since since the smartphone in 2008 hit the world, we've been kind of trained to to stay focused on our own interests really and and advertising dollars have have pumped millions if not billions of dollars into these very 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 smart companies to make it more and more easy for us to see more and more of what we want to see in our social media, in our advertising, everywhere. And so I believe that has made us forget the phenomenal potential of a face-to-face -face conversation with someone we don't know. It's made us have this false belief that my productivity of what I'm doing on the smartphone, the tablet, the wearable technology, that, that what I'm doing there would be more worthwhile and more satisfying to me than actually connecting with another person. And I mean, I, I cite one research, one piece of research in the book called Mistakenly Seeking Solitude that, that proves the complete opposite. That is these commuters on trains and buses in Chicago who, uh, who were tasked with meeting a new, a new a person on the, on the train and everybody thought, oh, I'm gonna get rejected and I'm gonna feel miserable or I'm gonna bother them. And the, the, the surveys proved that quite the opposite was the case. Both, both people in the interaction felt better as a result of, of their communication. So, uh, and, and these studies have been duplicated in, in England of all places where you, where you can't talk to anyone on the tube, but, but of course you can. One of the things that I recognize, and, and I think your point around technology and social media is, is so key. It, did you see The Social Dilemma, the movie? Yeah. I, like it's it's amazing and terrifying and just the way that the algorithms are built to essentially touch into our most visceral and emotional responses because it wants us to engage and in doing that all we're going to see are the things that we really love and the things we really hate and the whole gray area and the nuanced perspectives of life get lost because they don't engage us as much and what that I mean, again, that's just an insight that's really important to have, I think. And then the other piece that I think is important to see around like why we might choose isolation is that in spite of the the evidence that just stretching a little bit and making a little bit of effort to reach out and connect with people is is predominantly a positive outcome. And that the cost of the low uh, of, the, of the negative outcome is so low that, you know, on a logical level, it makes so much sense what I think we have is this perfect storm where technology, social media, and, and uh, kind of a materialistic culture is designed all around instant gratification. So there's 
almost no delay between making a choice and in some way receiving some feeling of, of satisfaction or, or pleasure. And that this different way, even though the, the pleasure and joy of meaningfully connecting with someone is significant, there's a little bit of a gap. There's a little bit of effort. There's a little bit of new engagement, new action needed. And, and that that gap between our choice to do something that on some level we know is good and the, the quote-unquote payback is, is too long for people to connect the dots. And, and in that, I think, you know, people who embody and walk the path are so valuable in our world. So like just wanting to shine light on, on you and what you're, you've chosen to do with yourself and your work. It's like showing people the value of it because the concept isn't enough. Like where we're sitting there, there there's a research study done on rats where they, they had uh, rats in, in a cage that was like really stark and there was nothing going on. And then there was water with morphine in it. And then there was another cage where um, the, the rats had, you know, access to other rats to be social and engaged. There was things to play on. There was all the food they needed and, and, and the same water with morphine. And that the rats in the cages where there was lots of life to engage didn't go to the morphine. Now, I've heard different kind of perspectives. I don't know um, the ultimate validity of that of that research. I've heard some some comments on both sides of that conversation. But the principle to me, I think, is relevant to look at, which is when life is rich, when we know what it is to engage and, and to bridge the gaps of challenge and difficulty in our lives, especially in relationship with others, that in a way life makes sense and something like addiction and, and sort of depression and isolation become obsolete. It's like there's no room for them because we're here to connect and we're here to stretch and we're here to grow. Um, and I think we're just under a lot of misunderstandings about, yeah, the value of things in a way. And, and, and social media is, uh, I don't think it's the evil instrument that some people believe it is. But I do think it's it's a bit of a runaway train because of the vested interest of, of the media platforms to engage attention and then to sell to that attention. Um, I think it's it's hijacking some one of human beings most kind of innate and, and healthy mechanisms, which is we want to feel connection. And, and it's sort of filling that gap for us in a way that doesn't nourish us in a relational way. I, I agree. And, and I also think that Social media is not necessarily this nasty, big, evil behemoth, but it's the way we choose to engage with it that is either healthy or unhealthy. And that's something that I think a lot of people also are unaware that they have. And, and, and if, you, if you are a, a viewer or a listener and you don't think you have permission to leave the house without your phone for a couple of hours, I'm here. My name's Tony. I'm here to tell you, you have permission to do that. And you may feel uncomfortable the first few times that you do it, even just for an hour. But eventually over time, you may really, really enjoy that feeling of not being contactable, not being connect, like digitally connected. When I go out for hikes, I often leave my, my, my phone here in Calgary. When I go out for, for a coffee, for just a little walk, like a 20-minute walk and, and, and a coffee with my partner or on my own, very often we leave the phones at home because we don't really want to be chatting with anybody else or dealing with social media. We want to be present with one another or, or just present with nature or ourselves. And 
one way you can you can do that, which allows me, I give this unfair advantage by leaving my technology at home because I, I can't fidget. I, I don't have a, a podcast to listen to or the news. Uh, I, I don't have, sometimes I miss the opportunity to take a beautiful photograph, oh shucks, but I don't have this distracting device in my pocket. So I'm, so I'm looking up and, and I see people and, and I can smile at people and say hello to, if, say hello to them if I choose to. And so, yeah, I, I think that social media, yes, has a, a dark side with all the advertising power behind it, but really it's up to us as individuals on how we choose to engage, how, how we choose to engage with it. And, and you, for example, I would say are someone who very consciously engages with social media and you've created and facilitated a number of really, really meaningful discussions in doing so. And I think that is, that's actually really, really positive. Yeah, I I love hearing about you know stories of what's going on in in other parts of the world where you know maybe there's a, a, a dictatorship or some kind of oppressive regime uh, or just a social context that really needs a progressive movement and that social media provides a vehicle that was never available before to uh, you know the population the, the the general population of a culture and and to me that that inspires me and, and makes me feel, um, it allows me to see and recognize the power of the tool of technology and social media and that it isn't all bad in spite of, you know, how easily we can come, come to that conclusion based on some of the things we might see in our feed. Uh, but you brought up a point that I wanted to get into, which is, uh, like stepping away from technology, uh, learning how to be conscious in how and when we engage it. And it made me think of when I was younger, like I loved television. I definitely watched more television than I think was probably best for me. Um, but but so I grew up in Vancouver, and and so the television was always there. And and I grew up in a in a home where there weren't a lot of kind of rigid structure or rules. And so I was kind of free to do whatever. Now that was lovely in some ways, and in some other ways I probably would have benefited from some more structure. But my dad lived. Uh, up the Sunshine Coast in British Columbia, which is just this incredibly beautiful stretch of coastline, and and he was it was two ferries away from Vancouver, so it took about five hours to get there, um, definitely out of the way. And then there was a town there called Powell River, and then you would keep driving, you'd get to a tiny town of about 500 people called Lund, and then you'd take a little boat to a tiny island called Sevilla Island, and um, there was about seven houses on the island with no roads and no vehicles. Yeah, and and so I would go there, and there was no cable, and so you know, part of me missed TV when I went. I was like, oh god, um, but inevitably, two or three days would pass, and I would just be fully immersed and engaged in this paradise of nature with ocean and forest and rock and coastline and sand, and and I I know that if the cable was there. I probably would have found myself sitting in front of it. And 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 so there's this thing about like when the choice is easily and ready, readily available and we have some loyalty to what we get out of engaging that piece, whether it's our phone or our computer or you know television, whatever it is, whatever our kind of tech addiction is, that removing it is a powerful way for us to just, without needing to choose it, uh, be in the space of of being in life without technology and and then the real mastery becomes can we choose that when it's right there uh, 
but we know it's not right to engage it. You know, like that's where to me the mindfulness piece becomes so vital um, in every aspect of our lives. Like, are we willing to be present to what's occurring and really tune in and listen to what's the right thing versus what's the easy thing or what's the pleasurable thing or what's the comfortable thing, um, which I think is where we tend to um, orient to in our culture today, especially Western culture. It's like it's so much about what suits ourself and what suits our sensibilities that are already there instead of like what nourishes what grows, what what enlivens me and, and the life that I'm living. Um, so I would like to get into, you just talked about mindfulness. I'd like to hear a little bit more about how you've used it and how maybe other people can. And then I'd love maybe some practical tips that we can leave people with that will um, just, yeah, let them step away and have some bite-sized pieces where they feel like they don't have to, you know, climb Mount Everest tomorrow, but but they can start they can start the trail. It's one thing to not engage with technology when it's not around, you know, and actually an example that, that I use sometimes is, especially when we talk about something that has sort of an addictive flavor or dynamic to it. Um, I worked with youth that were living on the street and young adults that were living on the street for a number of years. And uh, a lot of them had mental health challenges as well as addictions, almost all of them, to be honest. And, uh, for a lot of them, they never were doing better than when they got arrested and went to prison for a little bit. And that may sound bad to some people, but but for some of these youth, that kind of structure and that kind of barrier to accessing just free choice uh, allowed them to obviously get sober um, and and also allow them some time and space to just be and to look at things a little bit more honestly and clearly. And uh, so I'm not I'm not suggesting that prisons are a great place to be, uh, but just that there's something about not needing to choose, not being at the at the crossroads of choice of whether we engage these things that make life easier and more comfortable, um, that there's something about that that's really powerful. I think it's why sort of like things like a vision quest or, you know, like getting out into wilderness where there's just nothing except you taking care of what needs to happen to survive can be such powerful experiences for us. And and I think there's things to realize in those spaces, but ultimately to me, the mastery of life, the mastery of, of being present to life is about knowing what's the right thing to be and do when all of the choices are there in front of us, when I could go for that donut or that cigarette or that whatever, or when I could choose to not engage this stranger that might be an opportunity for me to enrich both of our lives. Um, how do I make the choice that reflects what the moment is really calling for versus what's comfortable for me? So I think my question to you is, how have you used this uh, dynamic or tool of mindfulness to navigate some of the, the discernment within those questions and crossroads? And, and then from there, I think we can maybe share some things that people can take with them um, to start opening up this whole world of meeting new people. First of all, I, sh I should state that I am absolutely not a mindfulness expert. Uh, however, it has been brought to my attention through my mindfulness expert friend, uh, Tracy Dels, that I have a very strong informal mindfulness practice. And an, and an informal mindfulness practice is when you, when you are mindful, doing other things. For example, going for a walk, leaving the technology in your pocket or at home, and just really observing what's going on around around you. Like a, you, you can do a meditation walk, 
So the differentiator between formal and informal mindfulness is sitting and meditating and, you know, closing your eyes, that kind of thing. That's a, that's a formal example. Getting out into nature, as you've just described, is, is an informal mindfulness practice. And so having a strong informal mindfulness practice, I believe, has really supported me in meeting people because somehow I have been able to, not perfectly, but definitely better than some, I have been able to consciously choose to engage with the technology when I want to and leave it away when I, when I don't want to. And I think a starting point for anyone who would like to have more of that, basically taking away some of the choices, as you mentioned as well, like taking away some of the instant gratification from the technology, is to, is to start small. And to, to I mean, if you're going to continue to be hooked to your device, which is totally natural because they're designed to be addictive, and you may get that, that uh, sense of satisfaction from acknowledging a notification or something that comes in that we're programmed to get. But you can start by listening to almost like an, an, an internal dialogue. Like, why, why is it that I need to feel so gratified from this little thing? Like, why, why do I need to have validity in my checking to see how many likes I got on that Instagram post or whatever? And just start to become more aware of how you're using it. So you can kind of get a pulse of, am I actually addicted to my smartphone? <laughs> or, 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 or get to see that perhaps you're actually really comfortable with how, how you use it. So I think a good starting point would be really to just observe where you are now with the tools of the day. And first of all, consider, you know, if other friends and family members are telling you, hey, you've got a problem, you probably do have a problem. <laughs> but also take a look at it for yourself and, and start considering that, say, would be a good starting point. Mm. Yeah, and that brings up a, a an interesting point. I think some people think of mindfulness as, you know, like a Buddhist practice, some kind of religious thing. Um, and, and whereas there, of course, is a relationship between mindfulness, uh, like kind of contemporary mindfulness and, and Buddhist meditation, um, many people that practice and teach mindfulness say that it's fundamentally a secular thing. It, 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 to me, what mindfulness really is, it's like really being here. Mindfulness is just really being in yourself and in your life in a full way. You're, you're open and available to what is actually occurring. And the practice gives us some kind of object to, to direct that kind of awareness. But to me, like, and I coached sport for years, and, and practice is amazing. But in a, in, a, in a funny way, practice is there so that you can go beyond practice. Like once you really get what sport is, once you really get what flow and, and being fully expressed as a human being is, you realize that there's no such thing as practice. There's just life. And, and I feel the same way about meditation. There's no such thing as meditation. There's just life. And meditation is a thing we can do to remind us how we're actually meant to be in life. And, and and that doesn't mean that we need to throw away our meditation practice. It just means that if we think that it's all about the practice, we'll never lay the practice down and really be in life. And, and, and to me, I think that's, it's beautiful and, and maybe scary for some people because then the life becomes what it actually is, which is this open road of possibility. 
So this makes me think about how I used to kind of beat myself up for not meditating, even though I'd had a handful of really positive experiences with meditation in my 20s and 30s, I somehow didn't have it regularly in my life. And it took years for me to discover that I had this informal mindfulness practice and that I didn't need to be disappointed in myself for not formally meditating. But in fact, there was still a great deal of mindfulness in my life. And so for others who are, for, for, for people who are considering this, like, oh, well, I've tried meditating and it, it didn't work for me, I would say, don't worry about the formality of, of a formal meditation. Of course, you could experiment with a number of awesome YouTube videos or playlists that you might find on streaming, streaming apps. But, but just consider how you can be more, just be more present in your day-to-day. And this is going to allow and going to eventually invite other people to interact with you. And that's another key point as well, is people don't know that you can meet people by having them come up to you because your energy is really positive or because you're smiling or because you, you look like you're just having fun. So, so it's not always about how, what are the skills I need to go and like connect with someone, like what's my target? It's not about that. It's, it's about being in this overall mindset of being open to connecting with people and, and that can create connections. Yeah, I know you include that in the book, This the, the, the kind of flip side of the coin of, of you being the activator or the bridger, and then this other side where it's it's like you become a space that makes it really easy for other people to want to bridge that gap of connection. Uh, what are some things you could say to people about what, what that might look or sound like? Or like you already mentioned, like the, the just like being warm, being smiling, being kind of receptive, but I'm sure there's some more specific things. Yeah, you could, I mean, one of the people who I, who I feature in the book is a woman out of Victoria. Her name is Molly Kay. And every Tuesday she gets dressed up in vintage wear and goes out in, in public to meet strangers because people come up to her because they love her, her fashion. And, uh, and often it's involved with a hat. So one thing pretty much anybody can do is, is wear a quirky or unique piece of wardrobe, like, like a hat, like a funny hat, or, or if you have a, a flashy scarf or sweater that you like, like a dare yourself to adorn that in public. And you will notice people coming up to you and giving you compliments. And sometimes they'll shout it from across the street. Hey, hey, nice hat. Or, or, or sometimes you might be next to someone in an elevator and they'll say, Oh my, that is, that's a beautiful sweater. Is, is that cashmere? You know, so, so people, you've probably already got something within your wardrobe that, that could catch people's attention. It, it probably already has caught people's attention. And in some cases, that might be why you don't wear it at all. And I'm going to invite people to, to think about how you could spice things up in your wardrobe a little bit, because that's, that's one way people just instinctively respond, sometimes without even thinking. It's like, oh, cool, sweater, amazing shoes. And it, and it can be really fun and create little moments of play as well. That makes me think of even more explicit ways that we can invite conversation. Um, I, one shirt sticks out among all others that I've ever worn that have, have kind of engaged conversation. And when I was younger, I had this uh, Diddy Kong racing shirt. It's a video game. And I, lo- I loved the game. 
and I just found I th- found this shirt in a thrift shop, and I was like, oh, cool, like this game I like, and it fit me good. And, like it was it was just it wasn't anything special, but people love that game, and and I worked with youth, and it was like a bridge for the youth that I worked with. They would immediately new youth that would come in the door were like Diddy Kong Racing, and and we'd talk about it. And then when I went out when I was out in public, I would at the grocery store on the bus, like. I had so many conversations because I was wearing this t-shirt and and it was such a simple thing and I, I started to realize, this is beautiful for me to kind of see this right now, is I started to wear the shirt because of the interactions I knew I would have by putting it on and and because it was something that I liked and something that other people liked, it was the easiest bridge. Immediately, we could talk about that, we could share about that even if it was just some offhand comment that that and then it was like see you later but it also provided the initial sort of step into all sorts of other conversations about things that are maybe more meaningful than a video game and so um, other than like a stylish piece like a feather in your hat or like a particular kind of sweater you can wear things that actually explicitly represent something that you are passionate about whether it's Dungeons and Dragons or you know a certain kind of art or Star Wars or you know you you can wear a shirt that you know other people are into and and that becomes this this uh, focal point of starting the conversation and then of course you you touched on a really important point there and that is establishing common ground so effectively what you're doing is wearing almost a uniform piece that said to anyone who observed you, hey, that person's got my uniform. I, I know about Diddy Kong. And so immediately, you know, those people know on a subconscious and a conscious level, I can relate to that person about that icon or that uniform piece. And by doing that, by expressing your interest in something you're wearing, as you, as you did, you, you just create, you, you open a door for people to come up to you and that's that's a wonderful a wonderful tip that that people could definitely benefit from from playing with as well. Cool. Uh, in the book, you talk about look up. This is kind of the the practical application, like tools that people can actually use to to bridge the gap. Um, I'm wondering if you wanted to just maybe pull from that or even go through that that acronym um, just to help people conceptualize what the what the tools or, or pathways they might use to, to start up conversations and to bridge their own gaps around maybe their fear of rejection. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the lookup process for meeting people is, is, well, it's a process for meeting people. <laughs> what can I say? And it evolved, it evolved from the Talk to More People project where I intentionally met over 550 new people in that year. Uh, I boiled it down to the main techniques and strategies that, uh, that, I've, that I used and put it into this handy little acronym called LOOKUP, which of course means like look up from your phone and you'll see the world happening around you and you get to engage with it. And also each letter of the, the LOOKUP process represents a different stage of the process. So the, uh, the, the L is, is a whole bunch of work around listening and, and not just listening to what's going around, on around you, but but also how to more effectively listen within a conversation. The first O is to, uh, it's a, a big section on overcoming internal obstacles. So taking a look at why it is, some of the things we touched on earlier, why it is that I might not be interested in talking to new people. 
And the second O is, is, the, is a really fun one. It's, it's an open a dialogue section. And there are six key strategies in that area that, uh, that, that guide the reader through an, a number of strategies that you can use, a couple of which we've touched on in this conversation already. The, the K is, is how to keep the conversation going. So some people have given me feedback that, well, I've gotten comfortable approaching people now and, and I can start it, but oh my gosh, what do I, what do I say once we're talking? I, I sort of freeze up. So that gets addressed and, and keep the conversation going. The U stands for uncomfortable, like how to exit a conversation. And, uh, and we touch on there about how you can know that you're not making someone else uncomfortable. And also some tips on how to use your own voice when, when you need to speak up, if you hear something that's, that's not right. Um, and, and I touch on some uncomfortable conversations that, that are important to have today as well. And then finally, the last P is, is very near and dear to my heart. That's play and improvise. Because, of course, I'm a playful person. And, and play is a wonderful way to have a great day and roll around in the hay. I, I don't know. So it's just what I had to say. I just like rhymes with good things. Play. It's play is a wonderful way to connect with other people because it's similar to that sort of uniform piece I'd mentioned before that, you, you know, when you, with you wearing that shirt, it's something that people can relate to. So most people enjoy having a good time. And so, so play is the, uh, play is the P in the process. I love how simple and practical it is. It it feels like a book that children can understand and that adults need to read because in a way um it's how we were when we were little that that made meeting people so easy. You know, I think we can all look back to a time when we felt more at home in ourselves, less self-conscious, less cerebral and 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 kind of cautious about being alive and expressive and playful in our lives. And uh, I love that there's a book now that people can kind of get at and, and read that that makes it super accessible, but also practical for our lives where we can start to re-engage these things if we if we recognize and decide that um, this whole world of, of being engaged with people that we don't yet have relationships with is important to us or that we can see potential there. Um, what I'd love to kind of close with is I really believe that we come to the work we do uh, for for particular reasons. And uh, I get a feeling with you that, um, I don't know about destiny, but but it just feels like you're on the right, you're on the right route. And I'm wondering if you could share a story from when you were younger that, and if you want to take a moment to kind of dig into this, but like a moment or a situation when you were younger that, that you think kind of informed or catalyzed this this direction for you, you know, like where you saw something, you realized something, um, yeah, you came into, into a, an understanding where you can see the connection between that experience and what you're currently doing with your life. <clears throat> well, something something does come to mind right away. Actually, uh, most people listening to this conversation or, or watching this recording probably wouldn't think that I'm an introvert. And in fact, I am not an introvert now. But 
for the first 16 or 17 years of my life, I, I absolutely was. And I have three amazing uh, older sisters, one of whom is a, is a twin and one of my best friends. And I saw my older sisters as a high school student getting involved in things like student leadership and athletics. And it see, they seemed to have more active social lives, more fun social lives than I had as a you know, 14, 15, 16-year-old. So in grade 10 at Medway High School in London, Ontario, I somehow put my name in to run for student council. And of course, in doing that, you need to do a speech. And I think it was about 100, 150 kids that I did a, a, a talk for. This is my first public presentation as a, I guess I would have been 15 at the time. And, uh, and, and I got some laughs and, and I, got, I got elected to student council. And I believe that was a really pivotal turning point in my life from really identifying as this introverted boy or young man to someone who was daring to use his voice a little bit and to, um, to get involved in student council and see how I could help with whatever skills I had at that age. And I think that ever since then, I've just gotten more, I've, I've continued to build more self-confidence in uh, you know, delivering presentations. That's, of course, what I do professionally now. But, but also in engaging with people and, and learning that fine balancing act of you know, how is a really meaningful and useful and productive conversation work. So I'd say that was, a really, that was a really key turning point that had a big influence on me. It was way back in high school when I sort of flipped the switch from introvert to, to extrovert to some degree. I love that story because, and I was actually just thinking about this yesterday, what we tend to do is we tend to come across people who are doing amazing things in the world. And, and then we create a story about them that's something like, oh, they're special. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're doing what they're doing because they're different than I am. And in all of my life, like when I really peel back the layers, the work I do, like talk, having behind the scenes conversations with people doing amazing things, over and over and over again, what I discover is that they are so quintessentially human, just like the rest of us. And, and they happen to make some choices that are not easy to make. Like they, they, they were willing to keep engaging life in a way that was curious, honest, responsive, responsible, and, and then amazing things happen around them. And so for me, it's just a reminder to us to, to get out of our head, to get out of the stories we tell about why not, and to tune into why, like why engage, and to find a, a meaningful answer to that question. Mm -hmm. and, and actually, Dolphin, I'm really grateful that you brought that up. I, I, did, a, I did an interview last week, and on that interview, it was very structured. And I had this in my mind as well, is that if people watching if my wish as a person being interviewed or leading an interview is for the audience to get value, it's really important to consider how we can make it as relevant to the audience as possible. And, and I, I want to mention that, yeah, I am an absolute flawed human being who happens to have a big smile on his face because in this moment I'm going through some of the most exciting days of my life because I've done a lot of work, a lot of you know, a lot of therapy, right? I was medicated for 
for depression. I've, I've gone through very, very close to a bankruptcy many years ago. You know, I, I've lived in many different places and it's taken a long time for me to find what is truly my path. And I'm 40, uh, 45, almost 46 years old, right? I'm not a spring chicken anymore leading a, like a big leadership organization at 29 years old. No, no, I was still backpacking, you know? So we all have our own path. And I, and my wish is in, in the conversations I have with wonderful people such as yourself uh, and anyone else who chooses to talk to me that they understand, yeah, I'm, yes, I'm special and, and so are you, like, but I'm not so different, you know? We, we, we all have our challenges and it's, it's our choices and how we respond to our challenges that lead to growth. And I would add, you know, the, there's an old adage, of course, that people who have an overnight success have been working at their craft for years and years and years, right? Like this book writing project started nine years ago, right? I didn't start this during pandemic. Like this is a, this is a lot of work, like hundreds and hundreds of hours of work. And it's just, it just so happens that now I get to celebrate that and share the message with the world. So, so uh, thank you very much for bringing that up. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk with me. I appreciated you sharing with me and the audience, uh, your story, your wisdom, your experience. Um, I look forward to more. I'm sure we'll get the chance to keep working together and and, and talking together. And for those that want to get the book and want to get a little bit more Tony uh, or what you're up to, um, how do they find those things? So if they want to feed the, uh, the the big evil beast of Amazon that I know a number of people don't want to do, they can just put the phrase, talk to more people with the number two into the Amazon search window in their country, and they can find the ebook uh, or the paperback book, and in a couple months, the audio book. Uh, if they want to more shop local, they can, they can order it directly from me and just by going to talktomorepeople.com. And, and either way, I'm very happy for people to, uh, to get their hands on the message. Uh, I'd be happy to send them a copy. Cool. And they can get more information about you and your work at the Talk to More People website? Yep. yep. Talktomorepeople.com is where they can find out more about the events that, uh, that I have coming up, uh, different fun things that are going on, and, uh, and more tips and resources on how to build human connection today. Beautiful. And I'll make sure those links are in the description. So wherever you're kind of checking this out, uh, there'll be access to those. Tony, always a pleasure. An absolute pleasure, Dolphin. Thanks so much for the conversation today and for the great work that you do. Yeah, you too. I'll talk to you soon. You bet. Bye, everybody. You are listening to the Conversations for Change podcast with Dolphin Casper.